It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 269 for November 20th, 2011, recorded November 18th. Digital cameras have changed the way we think about taking pictures. It used to be that every click of the shutter represented a fixed cost, maybe 50 cents, maybe 75 cents, maybe a dollar. It depended on the film and the lab you used. The more pictures you took, the higher the cost. Today, you may replace your camera more frequently, but because there's no per-click cost, each picture actually costs less as you take more pictures. And taking more pictures makes you a better photographer. So, as a result, we are developing a nation of better photographers. There are other ways to become more adept, and a series on lynda.com is one of them. Now, three points converge here. First, you may already know that photography has a special place on TechBiter Worldwide. In part, this is because I had a darkroom when I was in high school, and Matthew Brady actually stopped by to help me learn how things worked. Well, not really. But I've enjoyed photography as a hobby since the 1960s, and I did spend 10 years as a working professional. Today, it's just a hobby again. Second, you may also know that I spend some time most weeks viewing programs that are available on lynda.com. By way of truth in journalism, I should point out that I'm allowed to view these programs without charge. Even so, the per-program fee for programs on the site are reasonable. And if you want to learn about a lot of subjects, the monthly subscription fee is a great value. And third, lots of people receive new cameras in December, either as gifts or something that they purchase for their own use. So, what if you could jumpstart your knowledge of digital photography techniques that are all but guaranteed to make you a better photographer? Would that be worth a few bucks a month to you? If so, let me introduce you to my new best friend, Ben Long. Long is a photographer from San Francisco. He's the author of more than 20 books on digital photography and digital video. Long is a writer for Macworld. As a professional photographer, his clients include 20th Century Fox, Blue Note Records, Global Business Network, the San Francisco Jazz Festival, the Pickle Family Circus, the Grammy-nominated jazz musicians Don Byron and Daphnis Prieto, Long has taught at the Santa Riparata International School of Art in Florence. That would be Italy, not Kentucky. He taught a class for imaging engineers at Apple. And he's even written some digital photography utilities that are used by the National Geographic, the British Museum, and the White House. In other words, he's a pretty smart guy. But beyond that, Ben Long is one of the best on-screen video instructors I have ever encountered and lynda.com offers seven programs from him. Shooting with the Canon 60D, three and a half hours. Shooting with the Nikon D7000, three and a half hours. Shooting and processing high dynamic range photographs, five hours. I've been having fun with that one this week. Foundations of Photography, black and white, three hours. Foundations of Photography, lenses, two and a half hours. Foundations of Photography, exposure, three and a half hours. And Photoshop CS5, landscape photography. That one is nearly seven hours. Given my background and experience, there isn't a lot that Ben Long can tell me for the first time. 
but he can remind me of a lot of things that I knew once upon a time and have forgotten about over the years. And as a teacher, he is excellent. I may have to write him a fan letter. The programs on shooting your Canon 60D or Nikon D7000 are examples of Lynda.com's efforts to put the presenter in front of a camera more often and for longer periods. The combination of a presenter who is uncommonly comfortable in front of a camera and outstanding production techniques makes these programs interesting, educational, and easy to watch. And that is not an easy balance to achieve. The bottom line, if you have a digital camera, you need Ben Long. And his series of programs earns five cats. It's very difficult to earn a five cat rating for an on-screen recorded instructional program, but I would give this series even more cats if I had them to give. If you're interested in learning more about how to make better pictures with your digital camera, check out his series. For more information, take a look at Ben Long's classes on the lynda.com website. You'll find a link to it from the TechBiter Worldwide website. It seems like yesterday that I was writing about the 20th anniversary of the IBM PC. And it seems that it was only a few years before that that I bought my first IBM-compatible PC. It was from Zenith. In fact, it has been 30 years since the IBM PC hit the market and changed everything. People who are today in their 30s have never known a time without a computer in their house. My two daughters are in this category, even though the younger daughter isn't yet 30. I was an early adopter of PC technology, and I'm sure that surprises you greatly. Well, Thanksgiving is just around the corner, and if you're looking for something technological to be thankful for, the personal computer would be a good choice. IBM wasn't the first, despite what they said at the time. Apple had the first commercially viable personal computer, and before Apple, there was the Altair MIT, a kit computer that did essentially nothing. But it's the personal computer, perhaps more than any other technology, that has enabled and empowered people to do things that otherwise they never would have found possible. By the time IBM released its version of a personal computer in August of 1981, the Apple II had been on the market for several years. So had other computers, such as those from Commodore, Atari, and Radio Shack. And, of course, the Xerox Palo Alto Research Center, or PARC, had been experimenting for many years with desktop or under-desk computers and trying to figure out how a computer the size of a pizza box might be developed. Even IBM had several precursors to the computer that changed the world. After 30 years, there's evidence we're approaching a post-PC world. It isn't here yet, and I suspect that a place will remain for desktop computers, just as it has for many computers and mainframes. It's all about fitting the tool to the task at hand. Handheld devices are excellent solutions for lightweight computing needs on the go, but the desktop computer is still the winner when it comes to substantial projects that involve, for example, editing, whether it's video, audio, or text, or graphics, photographic manipulation, and similar tasks. Many computers are still great choices for sharing data among large numbers of people. And airline reservation systems and other applications that need extremely high levels of reliability still run on mainframe systems. But it was the IBM 5150 personal computer that changed our lives. Before we had personal computers, computers were essentially single-use machines. They performed calculations, and that was about it. If you used one, you took your work to the computer, you handed it over to a computer operator, and you waited for the output to be delivered. That's what the PC changed. 
These machines were general-purpose computers that, depending on what software they were running, could be used to write letters, prepare budgets, and eventually do things like edit images, audio, and video, functions that would have been impossible or incredibly expensive to perform previously became not only possible, but inexpensive. Just consider over the years some of the things that personal computers have brought to your desktop. Typesetting, once an expensive undertaking. Page layout, even publication design. And then photo editing, audio editing, and finally video editing. IBM, of course, foresaw the end of the PC era, and in 2005 sold the PC business to Lenovo, just as the company had seen the end of the typewriter market and divested itself of the Selectric business unit while it still had some value. When IBM entered the PC market in 1981, the company countered a criticism that it had arrived rather late to the party by saying that IBM had been in the personal computer business for several years. They cited machines such as the IBM 5100 portable computer that the company introduced in 1975. The 5100 ran one of two programming languages, either a programming language, APL, or the beginner's all-purpose symbolic instruction code, BASIC. It came with 16 to 64 kilobytes of RAM, and these machines were priced between $9,000 and $20,000, hardly in the price range of the average 1975 consumer. In addition to the price, the only applications available for the 5100 were designed for statisticians and engineers. In 1978, IBM introduced the 5110 computing system with software that could be used by businesses for accounting functions, general ledger, accounts receivable, accounts payable, and inventory control. But at that time, Digital Equipment Corporation, or DEC, was the leader in that market segment with its PDP-11 series of computers. A year later, IBM released the 5520 administrative system. That was arguably the first attempt to produce a general-purpose computer. The 5520 included applications for text processing and storage. Then, in 1980, the 5120 hit the marketplace, priced between $9,000 and $24,000, still well outside the price range of home or individual office user. The computer did have 32 kilobytes of RAM, and it included a fast, 120 characters per second, noisy printer. Those who bought the 5120 could also purchase applications for inventory, billing, payroll, accounts payable, accounts receivable, and general ledger accounting. In other words, these things were still essentially competition for DEX mini-computers. And in 1980, the IBM Office Products Division released a device they had named the Display Writer. That was the company's first desktop word processor. Purists will insist, perhaps, that the Display Writer really wasn't the first word processor from IBM. That, that honor should go to the IBM MTST. MTST stood for Magnetic Tape Selectric Typewriter, and that pretty much tells the tale of how the technology worked. The MTST and the later MTSC, which stood for Magnetic Tape Selectric Composer, combined an IBM Selectric typewriter that was integrated with magnetic recording and playback facilities. The MTST's tapes were replaced by floppy disks on the MTSC. What the typist entered was recorded onto cassette tape or floppy that could then later be edited and played back. Later versions had two tape drives that could be used for basic mail merge functions. At a time when preparing 
anything for print required typing information and handing it off to a typesetter. The MTST and MTSC machines were remarkable improvements. Some low-end typesetting jobs, say, for example, a quarterly calendar of events for the State of Ohio Travels and Tourism Bureau, could be handled by these cold type capabilities. The jobs still had to be pasted up manually, but this process was faster, and it was effectively the beginning of the end for small typesetting operations. But to get back to the display writer, this was a huge improvement over the MTST and NTSC systems. Editing was far easier, and the new systems provided the ability to perform some advanced and amazing editing functions, such as indenting text, full justification, centering, and even underlining. Additionally, the display writer contained a spelling dictionary with an astounding 50,000 words. But one year later, it was the 5150, the personal computer that arrived and changed everything. We never looked back. In short circuit, some changes are coming for Gmail. Google says 2012 will bring changes to the way Gmail works and that Google Plus will be more important, not just for individuals, but also for businesses. That is the word from the annual Google Atmosphere Conference. More than 300 chief information officers from companies that use various Google products at their companies attended that conference. Gmail and Google Apps are where changes are expected. Gmail currently claims more than 100 million users, but not all of those users consider Gmail to be their primary email application. Google would like to change that. The goal appears to be tighter integration between Google+, Gmail, Google Docs, and the Google Calendar, making them more Outlook-like. Currently, the various Google offerings aren't particularly well integrated when they're integrated at all. Microsoft, of course, is trying to maintain control of the Office desktop email, task management, and calendar functions with Outlook, and claims to be winning. But at this week's conference, Google's head of enterprise business, Amit Singh, said that Google is gaining thousands of customers every day. Also on the agenda is the battle between Google and Facebook, or perhaps I should say the upcoming battle. Google has jumped into Facebook's market with Google+. Facebook hasn't yet tried its hand at developing email, calendar, and task management applications. We'll see what 2012 brings. If you're used to disk prices dropping every few days, watch out. You may have to wait a while for the next drop. Quite a while. Maybe until 2013. That's what Seagate says, the second largest disk manufacturer in the world. Seagate's CEO, Stephen Luxo, says that prices will stay pretty much where they are until at least the end of 2012. The primary cause for this is severe flooding in Thailand, where about 13 million people are currently homeless. Thailand is a major producer of hard drives, and many factories that create drives are closed, either because the factories themselves are flooded or because the workers' homes are flooded. As a result, instead of falling, hard drive prices have been rising. They're up about 20% over just the past month. Getting factories back into operation will take until the end of 2012, according to Luxo, and it might take longer. Between now and then, supplies will be diminished, and the demand is continuing to rise. Seagate's primary competitors, Western Digital and Toshiba, have both lost manufacturing capacity because of the flooding. Predicted demand for drives this quarter is expected to be about 180 million units. 
Manufacturing capacity exists right now for only about 130 million units. Cell phone provider T-Mobile is the first carrier to adopt Google Music. Other carriers are expected to join later, but T-Mobile has kind of a special place with Google. T-Mobile offered the first Android phone, so the companies do have a history of partnership. Users will be able to purchase tracks through Google Music and have the purchases added to their monthly T-Mobile bill. Some content will be provided without charge to T-Mobile customers. Neither Google nor T-Mobile, though, has been willing to set a date for when the service will actually be available, so it's currently in vaporware category. Music played over the T-Mobile network will consume a significant amount of bandwidth, and streamed music needs to play back without skips and pauses, so there are some questions about whether the network is adequate to handle the load. The load could be substantial. T-Mobile's claim that three-quarters of its users have smartphones is correct. And, by the way, I'm one of the 25% that doesn't. Does anyone still use AOL's instant messaging software? Well, obviously, a lot of people do still use it. But a lot of people use AIM with somebody else's communications software. In fact, I don't think I know anybody who actually uses the AOL software, although a lot of people do use AIM to communicate. They use it with Trillion or Pigeon or one of several other applications that exist for instant messaging. This makes a difference to AOL because if you're not using AOL's IM client, AOL can't serve you advertisements. But those advertisements are, in fact, one of the reasons that many people use a client other than AOL's. In addition, services such as Facebook and Twitter have eroded AIM's market share, so AOL is giving its applications new features, and the company released a preview version this week. If you use multiple devices, you'll be able to synchronize your messages and responses between the various devices. The new application also makes it possible for users to show each other photos or videos instead of just linking to them. AIM dates back to 1997, so it's an oldie as far as Internet services go. The interface hasn't changed a lot since 1997. Because so many other options are available for messaging, including a competing service from Google, AIM traffic has been dropping. AOL now allows sending and receiving messages to those other networks, but the overall number of instant messaging users has fallen nearly a third in the past year, according to Comscore. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.